welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Um, I want to, first of all, just do a shout out on some new books that have been released today, um, this week. Uh, Jeffrey Hess has a new book out. Um, I'm going to scroll down my page to find it so I can tell you about it. Sorry, I don't have it with me. Uh, right this second. It's coming. It's coming. I promise you. Um, so Jeffrey Hess has a new book out. Also, Joe Clifford's new book, Rag and Bone, is available. If you haven't ordered it, definitely get it. It's got tons. It's a, just a super book. Um, Jeff's book is called No Salvation. Also, Alicia Vincent has released um, a book in a book series, a group thing called um, Cast My Spell. It's part of the Shadows and Sorcery box set. Also, um, Carolyn Brown, Mikado Mio, she's wonderful, has just released Cowboy Rebel. I hope that you go and find these wonderful books. My guest today is a New York Times bestselling author. His first book, The Expats, blasted up through the charts. He has since written three more books. Um, the one that is we're going to be talking about today is called The Paris Diversion. Chris Pavoni was um, in publishing for many, many years and decided to jump out from behind his desk as an editor and other things and go behind the writing desk. Um, he is a New York City resident and is on his way to Book Expo up in New York. Um, I'm proud to welcome to the show for the first time, Chris Pavoni. Chris, welcome to Authors on the Air. So good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I know we tried last week. You were on book tour. And uh, yeah. it's hard to work in interviews when you're in a hotel room or you know, rushing to go to um, – to book signings and so on. Uh, you, you mentioned in the green room you were gone for about three weeks. I'm sure you're glad to get back home. I am. I mean, I, there are parts of, of being on book tour promoting a book that really are among my favorite experiences in life. I absolutely love spending time with booksellers and readers and other novelists and other people who I'm doing events with or simply having a drink or dinner with after the event. These are all people who love books as I do. And mostly people who've spent their entire careers in the book business in one capacity or another. And I, they're people I love. And I, I love this experience of being able to go out into the world, to go to places where I don't normally visit and spend time with people who some of them are complete strangers. Some of them are, uh, broad acquaintances and some of them are friends of mine but they're they're not people I normally see and here we are in Scottsdale or Houston or Maine having conversations about books and it's a it's a part of my life that I really adore but I and I also love travel but I don't love mm -hmm. book tour travel I, I really don't like being away from my family for that long that I've gotten really accustomed to having people around me when I wake up in the morning. And even if we're not talking at the breakfast table, there's still company there. And I get yeah. very lonely very quickly. And it's sort of this, this thing we have now in America, especially of airplane travel, which takes forever and is so unpleasant in a lot of ways. It's spending the first six or seven hours of every day in and out of hotel rooms and taxis and airports and airplanes 
is just dull, and um, I'm glad to be finished with it. Although last week, my last week of the tour, my final swing was in New England, and I did it as a road trip, and I took my dog with me for the first time. And I have to say, that changed so much. And I don't want to sound here at the top of the interview like a completely insane person, but it's great to be able to talk to a dog in the morning and to have somebody, I mean, I, I use the phrase broadly, somebody um, in the car with me and he came to bookstore events with me and just, I unclipped his leash and he wandered around the bookstore and it was such a welcome presence for booksellers and customers and me, especially to have this other presence with me 24 hours a day. It really made it uh, a lot more comfortable. And I, I'm not, he's not an emotional support animal and I'm not going to attempt to get him licensed in any way, but I really did feel genuinely much better about being away from the rest of my family while having the dog around. So that would be Wally, who is your labradoodle, correct? <laughs> he's, right, um, yeah. yes, he's an, an Australian labradoodle. I would imagine that you know, our companion animals are simply that. He doesn't care if you sell a book or not. He's just happy to see you. <laughs> right? Yeah. As long, as long as you feed him when it's dinner time, he's happy. So I, I can understand that. Um, interesting to me that you took your dog. A lot of bookstores, especially smaller bookstores, have cats. They are, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a symbol for book stores. Did you happen to go into any that had a cat? No, not this time around. Um, but I did have uh-huh. an experience a few years ago when I started, when in fact I, I came up with the idea for this book, The Paris Diversion, when I visited mm-hmm. Paris three summers ago. And this was Paris in, it was about a week after a horrible massacre in, yes. um, in Nice on Bastille Day. And it was the year after the Charlie Hebdo attack and the November yes. attacks and all in all, hundreds of people were killed in terrorism attacks in, in France in the year before uh, this trip of mine. And as soon as I got to Paris, I was reminded so much of what New York was like in the fall of 2001 when I lived downtown. And we were evacuated from our home for a month, and we were going to offices that were getting evacuated every few days for bomb threats, and there were anthrax scares, and there were soldiers everywhere. And everybody was always thinking, whatever that loud noise was that I just heard, that's the next terrorist event. And I was immediately struck yeah. by how much I wanted to write a book about this expectation of terror, not necessarily the event itself, but the way that one terrorist event makes everybody expect more forever. Yes. It's not like it ever goes away. And that expectation of terrorism and playing with readers' expectations about what's going to go on in this story by setting up the way I wanted to set up this story, which is that a North African man walks into the courtyard of the Louvre first thing in the morning wearing a suicide vest. And you and me and everybody else reading this book, we've seen this story so many times that we're so yes. confident that we know exactly what happened. And I wanted to write a book in which that's not at all the thing that happened. And in the middle of this week in Paris, when I was writing this book, when I was coming up with this idea, I went to one of my favorite places in the world, the Shakespeare and Company bookshop across the river to, from Notre Dame. And I went there to have a drink with the owner, who's a really lovely person. And the cafe had just opened the day before. And this was their first week doing business in the cafe. And I went to have one drink, and I ended up spending the entire evening there dining wow. on potato dip and white wine and seeing this whole 
expat life laid out in front of me of all these artists and business people and simply people who moved from America or England to live in Paris and now we're there and visiting Shakespeare and Company to hear English and to buy books and Sylvia was there with her husband and her little baby and the shop dog was wandering around and the the hominess of the dog in the shop, um, as well as yes. the hominess of everything about Shakespeare and Company, which is this place that's founded on this principle of being welcoming to strangers and open to new people, I just thought was a beautiful thing. And the dog was part of that. And that, So that's one of the reasons I wanted to take Wally on this book tour with me, because I feel like that's an integral part of bookshops in general, that they're not there just to sell books. They're there to be a place where people feel comfortable. Yeah. They are a cultural icon, especially the smaller ones that have been around for a long time, and very important to our communities. Um, I, I used to live in Miami, so I would go often to Books and Books. I'm sure you know Mitch Kaplan from Books and Books. I saw and, him last night, um, yes. <laughs> Oh, did you? Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so, oh, gosh, if I'd have known you, oh, no, I couldn't have gone. I was on the air last night. Um, but... <laughs> You know, his the way his store is set up, it is just a hub for people who like other creative people. It is a place to go and dine. They have music. They have just open mic readings, everything that goes on there. Never mind that Mitch does publishing and he's got a podcast and he, he's an icon for, for mm-hmm. Miami, the Miami literary community mm-hmm. for sure. And um, as is his place on South Beach and, um, and, and the other places where he is. So I understand that. I think going on book tour also uh, allows you to meet the people who are selling your books as well as the people who are reading them. Is that not true? Oh, yeah. And it, I, I, it, I find it so educational. I, I mean, I've worked in publishing really my whole career. I'm now my 30th year of working in publishing in one way or another. And so much of it happens so divorced from booksellers. And it's so refreshing to go out into the non-New York world and see what booksellers are selling and why they're selling it and what customers are talking about and what they're picking up. And I I love doing it and I, I wish that I could do it more. Yeah. Uh, you know, last year at Thriller Fest, the Strand was the bookseller and I was doing a live show there and I invited a couple of the young people who were manning the register there in the book room and asked them uh, what it, how did they recommend books? And it was a very eye opening experience how they recommended books to customers who came into the store. I think the salespeople, not necessarily the owners, but the salespeople really can clue in a lot of writers about what they should be doing with their books and why they may or may not sell. So I thought that was mm-hmm. particularly fascinating. And I also think that a good bookseller knows who his regular customers are. So um, mm-hmm. you you mentioned that there's good and bad things about it. The bad thing I'm assuming that is because you're away from your family and, and sometimes for long periods of time, this tour you said was, on, was three weeks long. Um, uh, how do readers address you when, you know, what are the questions that they have that are pedantic and what are the ones that are really unique? Did you have some of those highs and lows? Um, 
people tend to not ask bad questions in front of a crowd, I find. I mean, I, I think if you, if you work up the nerve to ask something in a bookstore, um, it's usually something that you've thought through pretty clearly. And I, I think my, I'm less interested in answering questions that I know a lot of readers have, a lot of people in bookstores have, about writing process, like when I right. write and where I write. And people right. at every event that I do, and I, I, for this book tour, I also did, I did a lot of events with other authors and other oh, that's and nice. moderators. And it was very satisfying um, to be with, with Jeffrey Deaver in Scottsdale yeah. and Michael Carita in Houston and Gail Lynn yep. in Portland, Oregon. It's just, it's, it's great to have someone else there with you. Um, but those questions about, about process, the, the nuts and bolts of where I do my typing, um, I don't, I, I find to be, I don't care what other authors do in that regard. It's, it's, right. it's not something that ever interests me. It's just, that's sort of like asking, when do you exercise? It has nothing to do right. with me with the creative <laughs> process of right. how you figure out what's going to happen in this book and how right. you structure it and what mistakes you try to avoid making. I'm much more interested and I love getting questions about those nuts and bolts of writing, the technical aspects of generating suspense or editing or uh, d- developing points of view or even naming characters, which is something that I take fairly seriously. Those to me are the most interesting questions. So let's ask you a few of those questions. Um, what comes <laughs> first the character or the story? Well, uh, I, I think for the four books that I've written so far, the character, the main character, is the story. And they Kate. come to me at the yes. same moment. And I can't really. really separate them, or I don't want to. And I, I feel like the, the, the idea comes to me, it always begins with a noun. It always begins with a woman discovers or a man falls into or something, it's something happening to somebody or someone does something that is the setup. And part of the setup of the plot is that person's situation in life, that the Travelers is a book about a travel writer who becomes a spy. And he can't become a spy unless he's a travel writer. And the, the travel writing is what leads to him becoming a spy. And his entire character is premised around this thing that happens to him. And so they both do occur to me at once, as well as a t- plot twist. Something happens. And what, what occurred to me in this book was I knew when I was in Paris that week that I wanted the protagonist to be this, this woman I invented a decade ago, Kate Moore, when I was an expat living in Luxembourg. And I'd given up my career to follow my wife's abroad for her job. And this is exactly what my protagonist of the expats had gone through. Years later, for this book, they are now living more or less happily in Paris when a man shows up wearing the suicide vest at the Louvre. And that character and that situation are married together from the get-go to me in what this book is about. It's about her dealing with that situation, not just her and not just that situation, but the two of them combined. It's interesting. Um, uh, just as a point, uh, an interesting point, um, the Louvre is closed right now because their employees are on strike. I don't know if you knew that, but I thought it was really interesting because <laughs> no. when I started reading your book and then I was thinking, I have a friend who's going over there specifically to see 
the museum, and I, I yeah. hope that they go back to work before that happens. Um, I think your writing is so stylistic, Chris. It's um, Thank you. Not like the traditional thrillers that I read, and believe me, I read them all. And Mm -hmm. um, it is my absolute favorite genre, even though I read across genre. Um, There's just something about your writing, uh, the way you construct sentences. It seems like you are so aware of every word that you put on the page. Um, I don't know if that's something that came to you from your years of being in publishing, or it's just your natural style of writing. Um, Do you know, are you inspired by any particular writing style or writer in particular? Not, not one in particular. I mean, I'm, I'm inspired by a lot of great writing that I, I read very broadly, and I read a lot of thrillers and a lot of mysteries and, and a lot of what we tend to call literary fiction. And there right. are some books that I'm reading strictly because I find the plot premise compelling and I want to see what happens. And those are books where I'm happy to turn the pages and skip entire paragraphs, skip entire pages, because after 50 pages, I realize there is not going to be one beautiful sentence in this entire book. And that's fine. That That's, that's sort of the frozen yogurt version of having dessert. Like it's, it's not necessarily ice cream, but it's what, what I want at this moment. It's not going to make me fat and I don't have to feel guilty about it. Um, Then there are books where I find absolute pleasure in reading every single sentence. And some of those books have no plot and sometimes their lack of plot bothers me. Sometimes after a hundred pages of painfully beautiful sentences, I think to myself, my God, if only something would happen, this would be such a good book. <laughs> but usually it's obviously right. Right. somewhere in the middle. And I think perhaps my, my favorite, the person who does the greatest job of marrying spectacular sentences, one after the other after the other, with compelling plots that make books unputdownable, is Kate Atkinson, whose new Jackson Brody mystery, uh, forthcoming, I think, in August, I just read about a month ago. And I was really struck reading this book again, which is, it's, it's a, in a lot of ways, a traditional mystery with a large cast of characters. And the crime itself doesn't particularly matter. It's more, it's a book about characters interacting with each other with this crime to solve in the background, but such acute social observations and such apt vocabulary and such beautiful sentences, so many of them that it just, it gives me immense pleasure to just read that. And I don't care if I'm getting anywhere in particular. I'm in no rush to finish these books. I don't necessarily care what happens in the plot, as long as there's enough plot to make me not wonder why this story exists. The the flimsiest excuse can be all right for me. And the truth is that I try to have very complicated plots. I like a lot of plot as well. And I want to write books with big, thick, rich plots with a lot of twists in them and a lot of surprises for readers. But still the thing that I am most drawn to as a reader are beautiful sentences. And so I try to write them. And I don't yeah. know if it comes naturally. I do know it comes with a, a tremendous amount of editing and work that it's not simply flowing from my golden fingertips uh, without any right. intervention. That right. I spend a lot of time editing and a lot of time cutting and a lot of time belaboring vocabulary choices and sentences, and I really beat myself up for the year I spend editing every book that I write. 
Well, don't because the outcome is so wonderful. And I absolutely agree that beautiful sentences keep me riveted to a book. The, the, if the narrative is that spectacular, I'm there. I'm there in the moment. I'm, I, I'm stepped inside the book and I'm following along with what you've written. So I understand that. Um, how important to you are the beautiful sentences and the vocabulary when it comes to dialogue? Oh, that's pretty important. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think people speak in beautiful sentences as I'm probably right. evincing right now. I mean, people speak as they speak and I right. try to get that right as well, that I think the, the beautiful sentences and the, the insights and commentary into how we live and how we relate to one another, I think that is more in the type of close third person narrative that I mm -hmm. write a lot of that. That's, that's where I think the, the best of my language is. I don't think that's necessarily how people speak. And I try not to make them speak more, um, more pretty, as David Sedaris would say, than people right. speak in real life. I, I want it right. to sound like real dialogue um, with sentence fragments and interruptions. And I, I try not to make it too much of a tick, which bothers me as a reader, but I, I don't try to make our dialogue sound like um, people's dispositions in a thesis paper. Right. Um, do you read your dialogue out loud to yourself, Chris? I do, yeah. I think that's um, a really important thing. It's not necessarily something thing. I enjoy doing, but I think it's necessary. I do too, because, um, and I will tell you this as an avid reader myself, I notice that if um, dialogue does not sound right coming either from a male or female character, it's a speed bump for me in a book. So mm -hmm. uh, I, do, I want to have dialogue that um, I know who is speaking, not Kate said this and Dexter said that and Hunter said this. I want to know that they don't all speak the same. It's not homogenized, but rather they have their own distinct patterns of speech. And I recognize them so that you can have a quick dialogue a conversation between two or three characters and i know exactly who everyone is um mm -hmm. I, I find that to be a bonus when i'm reading do, do you know what i'm saying uh i oh, i don't want yeah. Uh, yeah i don't want kate to sound like her husband because mm -hmm. obviously men and women speak differently different men and different men and men speak differently and women and women speak differently. So I think that you, you've done such a beautiful job on that. Um, let's talk just for a couple more minutes. Cause I don't want to keep you. I know you are happy to be with your family and you're trying to go to, um, to book expo. Um, uh, tell us a little bit without giving away any spoilers about the Paris Diversion. It is a remarkable book, by the way, listeners. Well, I, I mean, thank you. That uh, the setup is this thing that we've all come to expect. This this terrorist event that we we accept as a trope in the modern world. And I wanted to use that expectation of terrorism to set up what we as readers think is going to happen in this book. And then have it turn out to be something completely different. And as is true with the other books that I've written, I tend to not really have 
villains. I don't really see the world so much in terms of villains versus heroes. And even in terrorist situations, I try to have empathy with uh, everyone, all of my characters. And I try to put myself into a position where I can imagine myself being any one of them. And even if they're people who I don't particularly like, I imbue with them aspects of myself that I don't particularly like. And so they are all different versions of people I can imagine myself being. And one of the things that I try to do is create twists that once they happen, you completely can see going backwards why this is a natural twist, and then to twist again later so that the thing you think is going on at the beginning of the book, that's not what's really going on. And then the second thing you think is going on, that's not what's going on either. And hopefully neither of those paradigm shifts are jarring in any way. I do want them to be surprises, and I do work really hard on generating a bunch of different reveals and plot points that have twists levelly measured out throughout the book, and I, I alter their sequence around a lot to try to give them the greatest impact. And I also like to sort of punch readers in the stomach at some point in the book. And um, as I'm getting feedback on this book, there is something that happens to a very minor character at the very end of this book that I'm hearing again and again has punched absolutely everybody in the stomach. And um, I feel really honestly proud of that, that it's a minor character. It's not that important to the central plot of the book, but it is a big twist that nobody really sees coming. And once it happens, it seems like an unfairness in the world, but a completely understandable one. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that that exists. Yeah. It's interesting you're saying that because, um, well, I can tell you're in New York. I can hear the sirens. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Uh, Nothing no, I can do to uh, I, Unless you called them, I'm not blaming you. Um, uh, <laughs> I think it's really brave when a writer takes a character that may may or may not be a main character, but one that we feel invested in and then really upsets us by the loss of that character. I think it's a really brave thing to do. I think it shifts, like you were talking about, the paradigm of of how, you know, the plot twists are are key. I think it's a very brave thing to do, particularly if it's not a standalone book. This is, um, you've used this character before, so we're familiar with her. But um, I like that because it opens up a whole lot more story should you decide to continue to use the character in the future. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, and I like the twisty turny. I, I like that. I don't want something to go along without, with me just being complacent. Um, I mm-hmm. want to be shocked uh, every, uh, at the end of every chapter or every other chapter. I want you to throw me off guard for me to be completely invested in reading that book all the way through to the end. So you, and it's remarkable in the Paris Diversion. Thank you so much for a beautiful book. Thank you. So you are off. Are you finished with your tour now? You are done. I have a few more events scattered throughout the summer, but I'm done being on the road. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Where, tell everyone where they can find you on the webs, Chris. Uh, my, my interwebs address is uh, chrispavoni.com. Um, I also have a Facebook page that I, 
I update semi-regularly. I also have a, a newsletter that I've been enjoying writing for the past year that every month includes um, at least a recipe and a picture of Wally, as well as updates from whatever I've been doing, uh, work updates, what my favorite book of the month is, um, and you can sign up for that newsletter on my website. Um, a recipe, are, are we a foodie? Well, yes. I mean, I uh, although I, I don't love that word, but I was one of my the main things I did in my career in publishing houses was I was a cookbook editor for quite a while, and I've oh always been God. an avid cook. Um, and I, since I I left my last in-house job more than a decade ago, um, I've cooked even more, especially when we lived in Luxembourg when I had no choice of matter. <clears throat> Excuse me, but. I cook dinner almost every night, even when I'm not eating. How it. wonderful! I'm going out to do something else, but I, I love cooking, um, and I had a, so I had a lot I. of professional experience of editing well, recipes. Yeah, I'm signing up. That's all there is to it because <laughs> I love to cook, and uh, you know I'm always up for something. I, um, I yeah, I just got Jose Andres' new book on vegetables, and it's fabulous. You, and so you know what? So did I. And one thing did I have you? to say is. Ed- Editing Jose Andres' first book is one of the things I'm most proud of in my career as an editor. When I, I met yeah. him when he had a Middle Eastern restaurant in downtown yes. Washington, D.C., and he yes. was a well-known guy in Spain who just moved to America. And I've yep. rarely come across somebody who is so energetic and passionate and eloquent about what he did for a living and so down-to-earth and reasonable and entertaining. And I loved working on that book of his, Tapas, which is – a fantastic yes. book that has more it's than wonderful. just in it. And yes. I, I'm really proud of the career he's since had. Um, I, I think I signed that book up nearly two decades ago. And th- this year, all of a sudden, there's my cookbook author presenting an Academy Award of all things. It was a, a, a big he's surprise moment in my life. such an amazing man. What an amazing man. The things he's done for social justice and social, you know, uh, his social responsibility is so huge. Um, I will tell you in that cookbook, because you love to cook, every recipe in there for gazpacho almost sends me off the deep end. I'm ready to try every <laughs> single one of them. And as a matter of fact, I've already, and I cook for myself. And, and so I love everything in there. That book sits in my kitchen because that's the one I want to read all the time now. How funny. That's Chris Pavoni, it's it's been fascinating speaking to you. I thank you so much for your patience and coming on the air. I know we've had a couple blips in the schedule, but um, congratulations on the new book. I wish you all the best, and um, thanks for being with me. Come back soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And listeners, thank you so much for being with me. Um, Please go find Chris Pavoni's books. You can go to online retailers or brick-and-mortar stores everywhere and find it. It is the Paris diversion, but I also highly recommend you get the expats, too. Thanks so much, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later. (laughs) 